Hey everyone, this is Hannah. This is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. Today, I'm going to be telling you all about the murders of Sarah Sanford and Patricia Pyatt, uh, respectively. So these two women are the only proven victims of lesser-known serial killer Stephen Alexander Hobbs. Law enforcement believes that Stephen was actively killing sex workers in Houston and the surrounding areas for most likely around 15 years, spanning from 1996 to 2011. However, they can only confirm he was truly active from 2002 to 2011 based on physical evidence found at crime scenes, but it is suspected that he killed upwards to 15 women or more. So picture it, Houston, Texas, 2010. Around 5 p.m., a city worker doing maintenance on an oil pipeline in East Harris County would place a call to 911. Just a few yards off of an isolated dirt road laid the remains of a young woman, obviously murdered. Homicide Sergeant James Doucet, who at the time in 2010 had been working for the Sheriff's Department for 24 years, arrived at the scene and was soon joined by fellow Homicide Sergeant Curtis Brown. The sun was beginning to set, so the men, along with miscellaneous patrol officers, began working quickly to get the crime scene processed before darkness fell. The victim was naked. The only thing still on her body was a random silver thumb ring and toe ring. Perfectly stacked on top of her remains were what appeared to be her clothing, a pair of dirty jeans and a sweatshirt. The scene was different, violent, and purposeful. The woman had been hogtied, face down on her stomach. Her legs bent at her knees, forcing her feet towards her back, while her arms and hands were stretched behind her, connecting to her ankles. This position, if used with ropes, has been used to create a form of slow strangle killing in some murders tying an extra rope around the person's neck along with their hands and feet. As their hands and legs tire, the pressure on the victim's neck becomes tighter and tighter, forcing an inevitable death by strangulation. Look it up. It's pretty disturbing, but effective. In this case, however, ropes were not used. Rather, three separate pairs of handcuffs were woven together at the base of the woman's lower back, gathering all of her limbs in one central spot a single bullet hole was left in the back of her skull. Flashlights began appearing in the crime scene investigators' hands as they continued the search through the grass and thicket nearby. Blood-stained grass indicated that the woman had been dragged through the field by her killer and placed about 20 feet from the road. Not far from her body was a black purse, and inside it, investigators would get their first clue, a Mississippi ID card belonging to 48-year-old Sarah Annette Sanford. Along with her wallet, deputies found a plastic bag containing some personal hygiene products like a toothbrush, lipstick, body spray, and condoms. Based on the items found with Sarah, law enforcement believed it was possible that Sarah was a sex worker and unfortunately was picked up by the wrong guy and killed as a result. By nightfall, the medical examiner arrived on scene to review Sarah's remains. They were able to determine that she was shot with a large caliber weapon. Her body showed some signs of bruising, indicating a struggle, and she had most likely been dead for over 24 hours. Immediately, Sergeant Doucet knows he wants to get the handcuffs processed for fingerprints and DNA, along with a cigarette butt found near Sarah's body. Some officers begin making small remarks about how the handcuffs could be signs of the killer having a simple kink or possibly a full-blown fetish requiring the handcuffs in their sex life. However, all of the officers on scene agreed that leaving behind not just one, but three pairs of high-quality handcuffs was incredibly odd. 
Furthermore, they noted that the specific brand of the cuffs, Smith & Wesson, was commonly used by law enforcement. The medical examiner takes Sarah's body to the morgue, while Sergeant Doucet heads to the Wallaceville substation to begin looking into Sarah. Investigators reach out to patrol officers that serve the area Sarah was found in to see if they possibly knew her or had more information on Sarah and what circles she ran in. They get lucky when one of the deputies tells them, yeah, I know of Sarah. I've seen her working the nearby truck stop picking up Johns. That's kind of her stomping ground. So with his first lead, Sergeant Doucet, along with Detective James Cassidy, head out to the truck stop. They drive up and down the lanes of semis parked for the night, trying to spot girls hopping in and out of trucks. They know they need to talk to some of the women who work at that area to get some insight into Sarah and possibly even her killer. Soon, girls began emerging from the shadows and truck cabs. They were asked if they knew Sarah or if they had seen her leave with anyone in the last day or so. They were also asked if they themselves had had any run-ins with freaks, as they like to call them, or if there were any men out there with a fetish for tying them up or using handcuffs. After three hours of canvassing and talking to the men and women at the truck stop, Sergeant Doucet finally finds a woman that knew Sarah. She told Doucet and Cassidy that Sarah was new to town and had only been working the truck stop for a few weeks. She said Sarah was currently staying with a guy named Tim, who worked at the CB radio shop at the truck stop. According to this friend, she believed Tim could have 100% been capable of killing Sarah. With Tim as their only new person of interest, the detectives head over to the CB shop to talk to him. Tim was a hardworking, middle-aged black man. He told detectives that Sarah was homeless and he had been letting her stay at his house, but he hadn't seen her in around three or four days. Tim offers for the detectives to come and take a look at his home and to see if they can gather any more information from the personal items she might have left behind in the room she stayed in. Some of Sarah's clothes were piled on a yellow chair in the corner of the bedroom, while she stored some small tote bags in the closet. Nothing of note stood out. Tim appeared to be genuinely saddened by Sarah's death, and even provided an oral DNA swab sample to Desai and Cassidy as he sat on his bed. Tim confided in the men, telling them that after Sarah didn't come home the first night, he reached out to Sarah's close friend, Bill, who also worked at the truck stop, and let him know she was missing. Before the detectives left Tim's house, he gave them a white piece of paper with the phone number to some of Sarah's immediate family members. Before calling it quits for the night and setting his sights on locating Bill the next day, Detective Cassidy called one of Sarah's daughters who was still living in Seminary, Mississippi, and notified her of her mother's death. Detective Cassidy and Doucet learned that Sarah was not only a mother to three grown children, but a grandmother as well. Law enforcement didn't waste any time, and by the next morning, a CSU tech began processing the handcuffs found on Sarah's body. Two pair were nickel-plated, while the third pair was matte black. The officer didn't get any usable fingerprints from the cuffs, but he sent them along with other items from the scene to the Houston Forensic Science Center for DNA testing. The results could take months. Meanwhile, Sergeant Doucet and Detective Cassidy returned to the truck stop in an attempt at locating Bill, the man Tim had mentioned being close to Sarah. They find Bill, an older white man wearing a trucker hat and glasses, working inside one of the truck stop maintenance sheds, and proceed to ask him to sit with them in their vehicle to discuss what was going on with Sarah. Bill told Doucet and Cassidy that the last time he saw Sarah was on Monday evening, three days before she was found. Bill tells the men that he had originally met Sarah about three months ago when she had actually solicited him for sex, but he turned her down. Sarah had confessed to Bill that she was struggling and had been involved in sex work since she was 14 years old. 
Sarah was down on her luck, and Bill took pity on her, buying her some new clothes and makeup, keeping an eye on her while she worked at the truck stop. Just like Tim, Bill willingly provided a DNA swab to Sergeant Doucet. Before the detectives left the truck stop, they taped up multiple flyers, alerting patrons that there would be a $5,000 reward for information regarding the death of Sarah Sanford. The men knew that their best lead would be from being able to get more information from Sarah's friends and fellow working girls. After all, maybe they'd seen the truck Sarah had left in. But Sergeant Doucet is quick to remember that the road Sarah was found next to was tight, and the area wasn't necessarily easily accessible for a large semi to get to. Perhaps they were looking in the wrong direction entirely. Less than two days into the investigation, Sergeant Doucet has a woman come forward claiming she has information on how Sarah was transported to the crime scene where she was found. The woman said that the word on the street was that Sarah had been picked up and taken in a gray van, and she knew who owned the van in question. She said the van belonged to a woman named Teresa, who essentially ran a taxi service for the sex workers in the area. With address in hand, Sergeant Doucet heads over to talk to Teresa and check out her gray van. He arrives at Teresa's apartment, eyeing the dark pewter-colored Chevy Astra van parked nearby. Teresa emerges from her house, a rough-looking bleach blonde and a thin shell of a woman. Teresa agrees to ride with Sergeant Toussaint to the Sheriff's Department to be interviewed while her van is taken away to get processed. While Teresa is being interviewed and later polygraphed regarding her involvement with the murder of Sarah, crime scene techs begin scouring her van in search of physical evidence connecting Teresa or her van to Sarah's death. The van had its back seats removed entirely. Random trash cluttered the corners and dashboard while a spare tire sat dirty and busted towards the rear doors. In a small box, investigators locate a pile of clothing, one item being a pair of jean shorts, clearly stained with what appeared to be blood. Preliminary tests of the stains authenticate the dark spots as being blood, but whose? Deputies interrupt Teresa's cigarette break and call her over to the van asking her who the shorts belonged to. She admits that they were her shorts and that she had got blood all over them after receiving a busted and bloody lip after getting punched in the face not two days prior. The shorts were out, and nothing else in the van seemed suspicious. Teresa was honest in her interview and told Sergeant Doucet she didn't know anything about Sarah's murder. Her polygraph came back as truthful as well. Teresa was free to go, and the investigators were back at square one. As Sergeant Doucet watched Teresa drive away from the station, he begins venting with a few officers standing in the evidence garage. He tells them that the only new information they had, and the only thing they had going for them, was that ballistic investigators were able to determine the gun that was used to execute Sarah was a 45. In response to this comment, Deputy Gary Clayton says, You know, 40s and 45s are common calibers for guns carried by police officers and security guards. Hmm. Did you catch that? That's the second deputy to comment about the suspect possibly being a part of law enforcement. Unfortunately, months would pass without any real result, but nonetheless, Sergeant Doucet, along with other investigators, would run down every lead or place or person of interest. Five months after the DNA samples were submitted for testing, the results would finally come in. Suspect DNA recovered from Sarah's body, the sweatshirt that was placed on top of her, the handcuffs she was tied up with, and the cigarette butt found near her body matched DNA retrieved in another unsolved murder case from 2002. The victim in that murder was Patricia Pyatt. Eight years prior, Patricia had been discovered only a few miles from where Sarah had been located. 
Specifically, she was found in the San Jacinto River beneath the old Beaumont Highway Bridge. After being raped and beaten, Patricia was strangled with such force that several bones in her neck were broken. She was a mother of five and was also a sex worker and had last been seen walking from her home in Crosby. The investigators were stumped. They had two victims, but the DNA didn't match anyone in the national database or anyone that they had tested up to that point. Five more months would pass, but in September of 2011, the investigation would take an ominous turn. Forty minutes west from the crime scenes of Sarah Sanford and Patricia Pyatt, which, by the way, definitely an obvious forensic files because of the alliterations there, another body would be discovered. In a chance sighting by a police officer who had pulled over into a brushy area off of Red Bluff Road to clock the speed of passing motorists, the officer would find the skeletal remains of 57-year-old Wanda Trombley, only 30 feet from the highway. The only thing nearby was a large storage facility. Wanda was a mother of two with three grandchildren. She had been attempting to survive on the streets of Pasadena as a sex worker as well. Her family were the ones who reported her missing three months prior in July, and just like Sarah, Wanda was found naked, her clothing stacked on top of her. Because Harris County believed that Wanda's case was connected to Sarah's and Patricia's, they had Detective Sean Carazal head over to Pasadena to interview Wanda's family at their trailer and see if he could make any connections. The family told him that when they had gone out in the area looking for their mother, other sex workers told them that they had recently been attacked while out working the streets one night, and maybe Wanda had run into the same man, but things ended far worse for her. The woman told Wanda's family that the man was a tall, heavy-set white man with red hair, a beard, possibly driving a van. As Detective Carazal is speaking with one of Wanda's daughters outside, she casually says, Oh yeah, and the woman said that she saw a security guard uniform hanging in the back seat. Detective Carazal knew right then and there. Harris County had a serial killer on the loose. He briefs Sergeant Doucet and gives him the information he gathered from Wanda's family and the Pasadena PD. Carazal tells Doucet that he wants to check out the storage facility located right behind where Wanda was found to see if maybe they had any security footage and to see if they were employing any security guards that fit the profile and description given by the sex worker. Within two hours, Doucet and Carazal received HR files from the storage facility via fax to the sheriff's department. The detectives had a match. Stephen Hobbs, a security guard for the storage property, was 6'4 and 375 pounds. He was a redhead who wore thick glasses and had scruffy facial hair. Little was known about Stephen's past. Born in 1971 in Crosby, Texas, he was said to have come from a reputable family, but was considered a loner who mostly kept to himself. After graduating from college, Stephen married, had two children, and held a job as a security guard for a firm in Houston. He had no criminal record, minus a brief stint in county jail for a few hours in 2000 after he had been detained for a traffic violation. He had even applied to work at a small police department before his arrest. He wasn't necessarily the typical profile the police had expected. Besides the murders of Sarah and Patricia, law enforcement was still working on gathering enough evidence to charge Stephen in the murder of Wanda Trombley, seeing as how the M.O. and victimology were essentially identical, and her remains were dumped right outside his place of work. In addition to the murder charges, police had more victims to acknowledge and to account for. 
A 43-year-old woman who was working as a sex worker in the East Houston area told investigators that in June of 2011, a large white man with reddish blonde hair and thick eyeglasses had picked her up to go to a motel for sex. But instead of driving to the motel, she said he brought her to a desolate location on Wallaceville Road in Houston, raped her at gunpoint, handcuffed her arms and feet, and beat her with what appeared to be a mop handle. At some point, she added, he put on a security uniform and spoke to someone on the phone who sounded like an employer. Two other sex workers also told detectives that they were assaulted by a man fitting Stevens' description wearing a security uniform. When detectives showed the 43-year-old victim several men's photos, she identified Stevens' picture, saying she was absolutely certain that he was the man who had assaulted her. With this arsenal of information and allegations, Stephen was picked up by Pasadena officers in October of 2011 and taken back to the police station to be interviewed. The detectives performing the interview with Stephen were going to take a different approach and start the interview with the accusations made by the other sex workers who had accused him of beating and raping them. The detectives were hoping that Stephen might dig his own grave and slip up by mentioning the dead victims all on his own. And in his own way, he did just that. Stephen honestly came across as a gentle giant in his interview. Sure, he was big, but when he spoke, he was relatively pleasant and calm and nice, which I suppose is even scarier in a way. He told Pasadena detectives that he had never hurt anyone and that the only thing that he had done that was really wrong was picking up prostitutes every now and then. Stephen then doubled down and said that not only had he never hurt anyone, but he had never killed anyone either. Harris County and Pasadena detectives are giggling internally at this royal fuck-up. No one had mentioned anyone dying or getting killed up to that point, so having Stephen bring it up on his own was exactly what they wanted. The interview ends after Stephen requests an attorney. Before he does, though, Stephen openly admits to paying a girl for sex with three sets of handcuffs, two nickel-plated, and one matte black even telling detectives that he did so months ago, exactly around the time that Sarah was found killed. After the interview, Stephen Hobbs would be charged with kidnapping and rape in the attack of the 43-year-old sex worker I mentioned earlier. He would also be charged with the aggravated assault of 28-year-old sex worker Daniel Perfit, which had occurred in June of 2011. On October 13th, my favorite day of every year, 2011, It was finally confirmed that Stephen Hobbs was a match to the biological material left at the scene of the murders of Sarah and Patricia. Unfortunately, though, the results were inconclusive in the murder of Wanda Trombley. The gap between the murders of Sarah, Patricia, and Wanda led investigators to reinvestigate the murders of at least 15 other sex workers around Harris County and the surrounding areas, as they believed that Stephen was responsible for more crimes than what he had been linked to. Time ticked by, and year after year, Stephen stayed in the Harris County Jail waiting for his day in court. Stephen was originally scheduled to be tried for the two murders in 2015, but new DNA testing prompted a hold. Then, in 2017, Hurricane Harvey forced another round of delays. A few more years passed, and the COVID-19 pandemic came next, further pushing back the myriad of court dates slated for numerous defendants, not just Stephen Hobbs. Stephen had previously faced the death penalty, but members of a capital punishment review committee with the Harris County District Attorney's Office determined that he and two others were not appropriate for the punishment any longer. Specifics were never fully given. 
So in 2020, Harris County District Attorney Kim Ogg announced that she would not be seeking the death penalty against Stephen if and when he went to trial. Finally, on May 2nd, 2022, Stephen Hobbs went before Judge Natalia Cornelio in a juvenile courtroom where the trial was to be held. There, Stephen entered a guilty plea to killing Patricia Pyatt and Sarah Sanford. His original charges of two rapes, one kidnapping, and two aggravated assaults with a deadly weapon were dismissed as part of the plea deal. By him pleading guilty to all charges, Stephen was automatically sentenced to life terms with a chance of parole after serving at least 50 years, meaning that he could be paroled when he is 101 years old. The reason for his admittance to guilt was supposedly due to remorse for his crimes and encouragement from his family. Prosecutors noted in the courtroom that Stephen Hobbs was the longest-serving inmate at the Harris County Jail, supposedly following Lucky Ward, who was sentenced to death in 2020. Lucky Ward, who Cassie covered in episode 42 of the podcast way back in 2018, was held in the county jail for more than a decade. Even though Stephen received two life sentences, he got 10 years credit for time served, He will serve 20 years for the murder of Patricia Pyatt and 30 years for the murder of Sarah Sanford. And in January of 2023, he was officially moved into the Ramsey unit in Rocheron, Texas. And uh, yeah, that is the murders of Sarah Sanford, Patricia Pyatt, and most likely Wanda Trombley and possibly many others. So fuck you, Stephen Hobbs. Let's do some questions and theories because I have a few. They aren't really that serious or anything, but I still had some questions and maybe you guys did too. So let's talk about them. Did they find the gun that killed Sarah? I'd like to know that. Obviously, the bullet that was found lodged in her fucking head belonged to a 45 caliber weapon. So I think that that's interesting. You know, was it just the DNA on the cuffs, cigarette, clothes, etc., that linked him to Sarah? Or were they able to corroborate the actual murder weapon? Um, my next question would be that the police in the news reported that Wanda was found with, um, her body kind of just as more or less a skeleton, I guess. So obviously I think that she decomposed, you know, so rapidly because of the weather in Texas at the time, but based on the first 48 episode I watched on this whole thing, it seemed like where Wanda was found was literally like right outside the gates to the storage facility that Steven worked at. So maybe this area wasn't as close to the buildings as they, as the show made it seem, or maybe it was towards the back or the far off side of the facility. But regardless, it makes me wonder, like, how did anyone not notice her dead body sooner? She went missing in July and she was found at the end of September. I guess I just think it's kind of crazy that nobody saw her remains, like until this cop happened to just like, let me pull off over here real quick, y'all. I don't know. Interesting. I'm not saying he like kept her somewhere and let her decompose and then moved her over there. Like that's not what I'm getting at, but I just think it's kind of interesting that nobody walked over there. Nobody saw anything. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Um, my next question, I'm guessing that due to Wanda's decomposed state, that is why the DNA results connecting Wanda to Steven or Steven to Wanda, I guess I should say were inconclusive, but I would have liked to know why it was inconclusive. Um, I don't know what all they submitted for testing um, to try and corroborate his involvement. If there was, you know, any sort of rape kit that was able to still be done or if she was too decomposed at that point or if there were clothing, other items, things like that. I'm not sure. It was never really formally stated in anything I watched or read. So um, it's kind of a bummer. I honestly think that it would have been a real 
win for the court system and for Wanda's family if, you know, they could actually prove that he did it. Cause I feel like he fucking did. Like it's, it was perfectly his, his MO. So <clears throat> speaking of which, oh my God, <clears throat> sorry. Ew. That was gross. Had to get some water. Um, speaking of his MO, I am intrigued by Steven's MO. So he beat most of the women, obviously raped all of them, but he strangled some. And then he, I read that he used his body weight to, to, to like put pressure on some of these women, obviously not to kill them, but like, cause they survived, but like to use, there was a serial killer out there, Jacob, what was his name? I got to find it and I'll be right back. Okay. I found it. It wasn't Jacob, but I was kind of close. I had the right letters. Nathaniel Barjona. He was known to kill, or he did kill rape and kill and to do horribly disgusting cannibalistic things with children. And he would sit on them. Like he was this fat piece of shit and he would put his body weight on them and smother them and kill them. And I just think that's fucking awful. But back to Steven. So he would strangle some of them, obviously rape them, used his weight to make them horribly uncomfortable. And then he shot others. I mean, I guess he just shot Sarah that we know of. But then one of the other victims said that he held a gun up to her head. So obviously that was part of his shtick. But he was kind of all over the place. He didn't tie all of them up either. And he didn't, you know, have a specific ligature that he used. He was just kind of like whatever he had on him, he used in the moment. And I feel like all that's pretty fascinating. He was very disorganized and he didn't really have his, his pattern down quite yet. Luckily, he got caught before it got too out of hand. It's unfortunate nonetheless that anyone had to be abused or killed by his hands, but you get my point. He's kind of an idiot. They all are. Let's be fucking real. Um, the fact that he stacked and placed the victim's clothing on them is, isn't weird, but it is kind of weird. Um, like that is kind of like a nice gesture sort of, if you kind of think about it, or at least a stupid one of anything, because leaving behind physical evidence is a thing. But I suppose he also just like, he couldn't take the clothes home with him or anything. So he might as well just leave them with the women, but to like kind of neatly fold them or stack them is interesting. Like that habit kind of reminds me of someone that would be like in the military or it's very military behavior, I guess, but he wasn't in the military or anything. So I don't know. I just think it's interesting. I don't know if anyone else thought of those things, but that's all really I had to say. Again, not major serious questions or theories, but anyways, that is all I have for you. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you have any case suggestions, please email me or message me on Instagram. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen, please. And thank you. I will be back with more Texas true crime. So if anyone is listening, happy Halloween.